You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, you are in for an absolute treat. I got to sit down for over an hour with my good friend, Brendan Vermeyer. Brendan and I go back a few years. We bonded at a conference over the topic of deadlifts. Brendan is a mental and metabolic health scientist and researcher. He's a functional medicine educator, writer, and speaker. He's also board certified as a holistic health practitioner, master nutrition coach, and master personal trainer. He is an epic human being and an all-around good guy. He's also a total smarty pants. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did making it. Let's jump in. Brendan, I am so happy to have you here. We were together recently in Phoenix for an event uh, with Better Biome, and we got to groove, and it was the first time I'd seen you in years, and now you are still in Arizona. I have flown home, and I get to have you here today, so thank you and welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I feel like we have gotten a lot of good time together, and we were vibing super hard, and I don't remember everything we talked about, but it was really good, so I'm sure we'll get into some of those subjects, but um, I think we're both a little bit better off from recharging in the desert. Yeah, for sure. So please introduce yourself to the audience so they know about all your spectacularness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know, I have a rather eclectic background for somebody in our space, I think. You know, I came into the functional medicine space with a background in fitness and nutrition which that was kind of the first thing you and I um, hit it off on where we were hanging out at that microbiome conference and you were talking about how you don't treat uh, patients that don't let deadlift. And I was like, this is my person, <laughs> right? Um, and it's crazy because the organic evolution of my career, it was like personal training, nutrition coaching, then more holistic health coaching, board certified holistic health practitioner. And then I just dove, you know, head first in the functional medicine space after going through all my own you know, healing crises and trying to save loved ones with, you know, mysterious illnesses. But then as I've gotten really immersed in the functional medicine space, I've seen, um, you know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement and opportunity and, and growth in functional medicine. And that's where I really like talking to other thought leaders like you of like, all right, this is a cool paradigm, but how do we make it more efficacious, more accessible, more practical and uh, more evidence-based and, and actually start encroaching on you know, the masses that are uh, not necessarily living their best life. So excited to dive into it. You remind me of a super eclectic, super smart chiropractor. That's, I always see you and I kind of put you in that because I'm a chiropractor too, but I, I, whenever I hang out and talk with you, you remind me of those guys, like the guys who do more than just musculoskeletal, the ones who really have a deep understanding of functional medicine and, um, you know, physiology and biochemistry and how it all works together. But yeah, we were, we, we grooved out on the whole deadlifting thing. And I think that that's something I want to talk to you about today, because in chiropractic college, one of the things that they drilled home for us was you can't just keep patients on a passive care model. And passive care for the audience listening would be things like supplements and things that doctors do to you, right? Like doctors apply treatments to a patient or health coaches apply therapies to a patient or to a client. Um, but then there's active care. And that's something that I see you touch on in your posts. And I, you know that I talk about a lot, which is really like getting your shit together and taking ownership of your health. And so that's what I really want to talk to you about today, because I know that you're talking a lot about mold and Lyme and, and chronic illnesses on your Instagram account, which is phenomenal. But I, every once in a while, I see your little, you know, uh, your little meathead, like... <laughs> 
gym rat kind of personality come out and I'm like, yeah, let's talk about this stuff. So what do you, what's your take on all that? Cause you kind of, your career has been interestingly a process through this. Yeah. Well, I think you and I, this is why we vibe so hard is we're both pretty no BS. And when it comes to, you know, any kind of healing or the self-healing movement or all of this, I've been saying for years and always rubs people the wrong way, but I think the first step in healing is to own your shit, you know, take some ownership, take some responsibility. Right. And I think there's just way too much victim mentality. And I think people kind of get off on the victim mentality of, you know, feel sorry for me and I feel sorry for myself. And, you know, I, I kind of have a tough guy background, you know, everybody thinks I'm like super nice and super gentle and that's great. I'm glad people feel that way. But my background is like, I used to be really hard on myself. I put myself through some of the hardest things. You know, I did combat sports growing up. I joined the Navy for the SEAL program and that was my life goal before, you know, I started my fitness and nutrition health careers. So, you know, I know what it is to make myself suffer. And I I think there's a lot of lessons to be extrapolated in self-induced suffering. But I think the real happening, the, the real healing kind of happens when you learn Learn those lessons, but then learn how to love and respect yourself. And those two things have to go together. And I think there's this huge self-love movement, but there's a lack of self-respect in that self-love. And there's a complacency in it, right? So I just, especially in the functional medicine space and what you're talking about with, you know, passive care versus active care, you know, I've always had you know, movement as medicine, food as medicine, that's, that's my background. That's where I came from and using behavior modification, lifestyle intervention. Whereas then when I came in functional medicine space, I'm like, wait, you guys are running a bunch of experimental functional labs that lack clinical significance or validation. And then you throw, you know, 50 supplements at them. And like, how's that really better? Right? So um, I, I totally agree with you where, I think a good coach or a good clinician of any kind, you know, we're here to hold up that mirror of self-reflection and help them observe their truth, right? And if we enable their self-destructive and self-limiting beliefs, I don't think we're actually really serving them. It's true because there's, we talked about this in, in Phoenix, the whole like insta-therapy, you know, people who are always trying to heal. And so it's, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so tired of hearing pe talk, people talk about heal. Oh, I'm healing. You're always healing. Like that's what we do. <laughs> we're human beings. We regenerate. My background's regenerative medicine. We're always in a healing mode if we're taking good care of ourselves. And I get that they're healing from emotional trauma, childhood trauma, adverse childhood events. But you know, that that's like a perpetual cycle, if you let it be, right? That's like a forever thing. So of course, we're always healing. And of course, we're dealing with our demons. But I, I come from an old school Midwest background, where like, put on your big girl pants and go to work. Yeah. <laughs> no excuses. That's it. I don't care if you're hungover. I don't care if you don't feel good. I don't care if you're having a mental health breakdown. Like, if you got to go to work, and people are depending on you, you got to go to work, and then you come home and you spend your time doing your self care. But and I don't mean to sound harsh about that, but that's how I was raised. And so I have a lot of that in me. And I maybe it's a younger person thing. I don't know what, where did this all stem from? Like, why are we in this perpetual allowing people to really double down on their healing journey when that sometimes looks like a full-time job and then people don't even leave their house? Yeah, I think 
you know, the pendulum has swung too far the other way, right? I think kind of the the tough love and emotional repression, that's kind of characteristic of more like baby boomer generation and whatnot. And with more emotional maturity and progression, I think that pendulum has swung too far the other way into a very self-indulgent, self-righteous, self-love, self-healing. And I keep hearing self, self, self. And it's like, yeah, but what about the collective? Like, are are you not going to show up for humanity? You're not going to show up for your own life because, oh no, like I can't possibly be professional today. I can't possibly give anything to anybody because I have to hold healthy boundaries so that I can put myself in my self-indulgent cocoon of self-healing. And it's like, okay, that's where this has, is going into narcissism and self-obsession. And that's not doing anybody any good, including yourself. It's true. And it's, it's, um, it's about, to me, like one of the reasons I like being, and I know I'm, I'm not a very buff, big, but like you're a big buff person and I'm not very buff, but I'm strong for my size and stature. I'm mighty. You know, I know how to use my body to generate tension. That's why I strength train. And a, a lot of it comes down to just being a good citizen. It's citizenship. When I was little, that was a big deal in school. There was like citizenship awards and you were always kind of training to be a good citizen. And I feel like that's been lost completely. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if they do that in school anymore, where it's, it's not even about the collective. It's just like, what are you doing to earn your place on this planet right now? Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like, I, I might have mentioned this to you or Quran the last weekend, where it makes me think, you know, I, I look at humans as we're just big microbes, we're macrobes, right? You know, we're, we have more microbes in us and on us than human cells. And, you know, you look at how microbes behave, like bacteria, it's not like, this individual bacterium is going to be like, well, I want to do this and I'm, it's all about me. No, microbes work as a colony. It's not about the individual cell. It's about how those cells are working together for, you know, the, the benefit of the greater collective of the bacterial colony. Right. So I think humans are really no different. And I think the more that we isolate ourselves and get so self-obsessed and self-occupied, I think there's kind of this like quantum quorum sensing of the human soul. And that's why we start getting so miserable is we're disconnecting from humanity by getting too excessively connected to our own self-interests. Mm-hmm. Which is easy to do in this digital age, especially with the pandemic and lockdowns. It's really, it, it is really easy to get up in your head when you are alone a lot. You know, when I was uh, in college, I, I think I was 21, 22. And I ended up leaving Portland State University and transferring to University of Oregon, Oregon, go Ducks. And I get down to Eugene. And PSU was a very, uh, it was in the city, it was downtown, it was very urban school, the people that you interacted with were a variety of ages. So I'm here I am at 18 going into college at PSU and meeting people from all different backgrounds, all different ages, all different ethnicities, a lot of adults returning back older adults, you know, returning back to get their education or another degree or further advancing their education, all of that. And then I move, I don't know why I did this, but I moved to University of Oregon to Eugene, Oregon, which is like a total, well, it was a total hippie, little hippie town and big on the sororities and fraternities, which was, I had hot pink hair and combat boots. Like it was not my jam. (laughs) And it was a bunch of young people going to an away school, like 
you know, they went away to school. And it was such a vast difference in what I had been used to. And I hated it for a long time until I started going on hikes and getting into nature. But the one thing I learned during that time was how to get good at being alone. I spent a lot of time alone that year. And it was great. Like it was hard and it was challenging. And I was really depressed for the first part of it. But I quickly learned that being able to be alone is a superpower. Mm-hmm. And then I stupidly made the mistake of allowing, you know, access to me when I started socializing again to dipshits, but quickly realized as life went on that you got to keep a tight circle of people that you can, as a base that you can interact with in live, in real person. Like that's why it was so nice to connect with all you guys at the Better Biome event to actually sit down with real human beings and have real conversations and be around each other. And, you know, even that, like, I I do believe even just having conversations in a room with people is an exchange of your microbiome, right? It's Mm -hmm. an exchange of all kinds of things, I guess. Um, But I always default on this ability to be alone, which I think is awesome. But I think a lot of people don't know how to be alone. They've just sort of been forced to be alone, unfortunately, through this pandemic and even prior. My daughter's generation grew up very much alone. I mean, you'd walk into a room with all of them. This is pre-pandemic. You'd walk into a room with all of them. They'd all be sitting on their phones individually, but in a group. Like that's how they were socializing was five or six kids sitting on a bed, hanging out all on their phones, doing separate things, which is so weird to me. And I can see how this self-obsession and narcissism unintentionally sets in on these young people. But that's who is voting now. Like that's who's in their 20s now, right? (laughs) We've got to deal with it. And it's only gotten 10 times worse, I'm sure, with the pandemic and God knows what else other bad habits people have acquired, which we know, you know, suicides, addictions, alcoholism, abuse, all of those things are compounding because of lockdowns. And where does that leave? Like, how has that been with your client base that you're working with? Like, what have you seen a shift in? Are people more sick than they used to be? Are they less resilient than they used to be? Are they more fragile than they used to be? There's so many elements there where I mean, rodent research shows that social isolation is associated with decreased neurogenesis. And so being a social species, you know, I look at it as like we quite literally need social interaction as a stimuli to actually, you know, it's just like you're trying to get big biceps, like you go do some curls to get that specific adaptation to impose demand. Our neurological system needs that as well, right? Like we need the stimuli, whether it's sunlight or movement or social interaction, that exchange of energy, the exchange of microbes. It's it's a stimulation that actually programs our brain and programs our belief systems. But now we have this like really biased, you know, black mirror with our cell phones and everything. And, you know, we know how those algorithms work. Like it's designed to take as much of our time and money and resources as humanly possible. So it's going to show us whatever elicits some sort of reaction. And then, of course, with our kind of instant gratification and and addiction mindset. So it it, it is it's hacking our dopaminergic systems. Right. And then we're not actually getting the stimuli. We need to have healthy serotonin responses by interacting with the world. So it's it's a very like confirmation bias, like whatever triggers us. And it's double-edged sword, right? Like my, you know, Instagram feed is full of pretty good stuff because I program my algorithm to to serve me, but it takes a lot of discipline to do that. And I think kids these days, I feel like my generation was like the last generation to kind of grow up without technology. You know, my first phone at the age 15 was 
you know, flip phone, T9 texting, and that's all you all you got where, you know, these days you have two year olds that can work an iPad better. So I think the way that technology is sort of augmenting the human mind, like it's really warping our psychology and we're just now starting to see the repercussions of that. Yeah, it's disturbing. It's I remember those flip phones. I remember the first time I figured out how to text on one of those and I was like, oh, I don't have to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought that was wondrous. <laughs> yeah. There there are upsides. Yeah. This episode of the Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. A daily necessity for anyone who wants optimal brain performance to enjoy improved executive function, clarity, and concentration, my vital brain with Magteen is the obvious choice. Magteen is a patented form of magnesium 3 and 8, the only form of magnesium proven in animal studies to cross the blood-brain barrier. Boosting the brain's magnesium levels is vital to healthy cognition, which includes long and short-term memory, learning, stress management, and even sleep. Vital Brain comes in a delicious lemon-lime flavor that easily mixes into water or your morning smoothie, and it does not impact your bowels like other forms of magnesium can. It gets into your brain where it's needed. Less pills, improved absorption. Magteen has been shown in studies to raise brain levels of magnesium, which impacts brain synapses directly. Unlike other brain products on the market that work via brain stimulation, often overstimulation, Magteen works via a completely different mechanism. When brain magnesium levels are not optimal, synapse function deteriorates. By delivering magnesium into the synapses, vital brain helps brain cells stay healthy without being overactivated. Consequently, brain cells respond to signals with clarity and robustness. While I can't make specific health claims, tell you how to dose, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how these supplements work. As always, check with your health provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Vital Brain by using the code VITALBRAIN10 in all capital letters over inside my store at store.drtina.com. I use this product every morning and it significantly improves my productivity throughout the day. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code VITALBRAIN10, all capital letters, for 10% off. On that tip of social media programming, um, I do, I find myself endlessly scrolling, which is never my agenda. I'm always, you know, you and I both use Instagram for work and for business. And so I'm usually very calculated when I go on there, unless I'm tired. And if I'm tired, next thing I know, I'm scrolling and I'm falling asleep with my, and I'm still scrolling. It's bad. And I'm like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous, right? Uh, I should be strategically looking for inspiration or looking for trends or, you know, I'm, I should be strategically assessing the Instagram. But one thing I did find, I think you and I have talked about this, is I, I follow certain hashtags that have nothing to do with my business. So I follow like a shark hashtag. I follow coyotes of Instagram. I follow all kinds of things that I want to see because I figure if it's going to brainwash me, I might as well have it brainwash me to see the things I that make me happy, right? So there is there is some strategy around that just for the listeners. Figure out how to follow hashtags. Get off mm-hmm. Facebook. I think Facebook is just, do you ever go on Facebook? No, I, I, I use it for business for groups, but I, I hate Facebook. It's a demon den. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awful. It's where all the Karens are. It's where all the excuse making. Yeah. <laughs> the, the male term for Karen has switched from Ken to Neil. Neil is the new. Was it Neil? Yeah, because of Neil Young. Because he, he, he pulled his music off Spotify, but then it oh. mysteriously reappeared. 
So it's wow. back. And so is uh, Joni Mitchell. So that's interesting. Speaking of, that kind of takes me into what I want to talk about, which is this like mob mentality, this cancel culture mob mentality, which I think a lot of people, it fits into what we're talking about. Because what I noticed in health, and you probably saw this, all throughout the time I was in practice, patients would be afraid to embrace their health and embrace dietary changes and embrace a lot of the things I was suggesting, lifestyle changes that were necessary, because they were afraid of what their husband would say to them or what their family would think of them or what their friends would think of them. And they didn't know how to navigate it out socially. Like, well, how do I eat like this when I go out? And I, being someone who does not give a shit what someone thinks of me, like has never had an issue holding my ground on that. But they do. And I think that kind of fits into that mob mentality, right, which we're seeing play out in real time now with cancel culture and censorship and all of that. Like, What do you tell patients when they're sort of in that world of, well, I don't want to change too many things in my life, and I'm afraid of what people are going to say, and how am I going to navigate work and business and travel, all that stuff? Like, mm-hmm. what's, your, what's your take on that? Well, you think about how before social media, your your social circle is much more tangible. It was much more literal. Like you, you go to work and you have this many colleagues or friends or whatever, and you didn't have so many eyes on you, or at least you didn't feel like you have so many eyes on you. Whereas now it's like you've got um, hundreds of friends or thousands of followers and, and you know you have a public account and anybody can see it. So there's that pressure, that more social pressure than ever. And especially when it's like you have ratings. How many likes did you get in giving that affirmation, which, you know, our neurolimbic system is getting totally messed up through this, where it's like we get that affirmation of, hey, society says they want more of this. And like you and I have to deal with that, where, you know, as influencers or business owners or whatever we are anymore, it's like there's what we want to talk about and what our truth is and the message we want to convey to the world versus what do the consumers want to consume. And they'll let us know the analytics don't lie, like the the reach, the engagement. So I think there's kind of this like subconscious programming that's going on. And so, you know, people are quite literally, they have to go against what society tells them to be and they're losing touch with their own authenticity. And all the while they keep scrolling endlessly and kind of getting programmed this is who I am. This is who I am. And it's like, that's not actually even who you are. You're just getting programmed of who you think you should be just based on your dopamine system going, well, I got more likes and this is what's showing up in my newsfeed. So that's who I am. We have to be fluid in in our identity. Otherwise, we're constricting ourselves and self-limiting rather than continuing to evolve and expand. So it's just not doing anything good. And it drives this heightened social anxiety uh, that people can't really escape from. And I don't think that they can, you know, <laughs> they they are having those real experiences, those real lived experiences with social media, and they have no idea what we're dealing with. Like there, there needs to be some kind of therapy group for those of us with over 50,000 followers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> they have no idea. Like I literally at a certain, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse, but the minute your account gets over a hundred thousand, like you can't say anything you want anymore. So much of what I want to say is, well, it will be censored, of course, by the powers that be, but um, more so there's, there's this expect, it reminds me of Charles Barkley when Charles, I don't know if you remember Charles Barkley, but when he got big in basketball, he wasn't really playing the like shiny Michael Jordan boy because Michael Jordan was big then. You know, he wasn't really playing that role and he wasn't being 
terrible or anything, but he just wasn't doing it. And he was a little rough around the edges. And he's like, I never asked to be, you know, I never asked to be like a role model. I don't know why this is being put upon me. And that is often how I feel. Like I never, I didn't ever want to be an influencer and people constantly are up in your grill saying, you know, you have responsibility. I, I share clinical diagnostic criteria that we use as physicians to diagnose conditions and people accuse me of being dangerous. It's wild. And so every once in a while I show my, what I really want to say. And of course, there's a whole group on there who don't want to hear it because they're like, oh my God, she's human. You know, like she's a human being. She's showing emotion. If I even dare show a photo of myself being happy or healthy, I lose massive amounts of followers. It's such a weird world. And so I try really hard not to hang. I, I know it's a weird, distorted version of reality. So I try very hard to stay away from it. But I can see how people who are just kind of using social media as a hobby, like not even for business, I could see how it can get really distorted really quick. You and I are kind of like war torn, you know, at this mm -hmm. point. <laughs> but what do you what do you make of that even for like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I know it's not reality, because I can't even bring reality into it without people flipping out on me. So what what about these poor humans out there that that's where they're getting their news, they're the algorithms programming it for them, they're seeing more of their echo chamber, like, and it's and it's destroying them because they don't have they don't have any balls. Like they they can't stand up for themselves. They're afraid to speak or do anything because Karen from the homeowners association might say something, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's like the lowest vibration a human can operate at to like I disagree with you, therefore you're canceled and that's just that's not true that we've we've lacked we're we're losing objectivity and we're losing touch with reality and literally there is kind of this i mean you know i know mass psychosis because it's kind of the trendy thing right now but there is a very real i mean brain on fire and psychotic behavior going on at a collective sociological level and i think that movie don't look up on netflix was hysterical because of that because look i mean you can you can deny and seal yourself that's I was on a podcast the other yesterday that we were talking about this a little bit where I think one of the big problems is in this modernized world where you have your Petri dish that is your apartment, your home, you can plug into the metaverse, the virtual reality, and literally experience whatever you want in a very self-indulgent confirmation bias echo chamber, nothing that could possibly trigger you because it's everything you want to see and nothing you don't want to see. That's that's like the most self-indulgent, you know, destruction to the human soul. Like it takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to be receptive to opposing views. And you don't even necessarily have to accept them, but you can still be receptive. That's where growth comes from. And so I think a lot of these people by rejecting anything that opposes their self-interested belief system, they're just stunting themselves, right? And I think people have to, at some point, wake up. But like, I, I feel bad for the people that are stuck there, right? I think they are really struggling and they can't distinguish between truth and, um, you know, fiction. And then a lot of these people are really suffering physiologically, which just kind of potentiates and exacerbates the whole thing. I feel like a lot of people are living in a lie. Mm -hmm. Well, we know they are. And they're 
Oh, it's it's so weird to me. I mean, I've, I've never understood, uh, literally, like I've never understood people who watch the news. I, I knew as a kid, like a very little kid, I remember walking in on my parents watching the news and I could tell something was wrong. I didn't know that word was propaganda until I was older, but I could see it, you know, because I could see I would... I would watch the news stations my parents watched, and then I would watch different news stations that I didn't even know existed until I started flipping through the cable, you know, channels. And the difference between, and it's obviously gotten much larger now, but the difference between the two sides politically, you'd get a whole different story on the other side, right? Um, And my listeners know this story. I was, my history teacher in high school was an East German who immigrated from East Germany. So he taught us about propaganda. And his name was Mr. Gebauer and he wore brown clothes every day. He was very much like Eastern Bloc dude, but he was warning us against propaganda and and teaching us history from a different perspective than just what US history would be. And it was mind blowing. And so that was all a big time of, you know, I was listening to a lot of music that was opening my mind and challenging me to think harder and, you know, the whole... The whole thing was happening. But, and I was right at that age where like, that was critical and awesome. But I, I think that there's a lot of people who haven't had that experience. And so they just kind of go along with it. And I think there's a physical cost to living in a lie. And I don't even think they know it. So I think there's like a depletion energetically that occurs when you live in a lie and you don't follow the truth because the truth is a lonely, hard place to be. And I have vowed my whole life to stay there. And it's been a lonely, hard path at times, but I would not have it any other way. And then I get to meet friends like you and we, you know, we get to have great connections because of it. But, and I know you're kind of that way too, like you're a bit of a lone wolf. What do you make of that? Because these people are literally ingesting lies and propaganda and believing it and parroting it and attacking others for it. Like this is where we have dissolved to as a society. And it's mind blowing to me that like, I don't think they've got a lot of years left in them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no. Well, so you'll you'll dig this. You got me hooked on Cobra Kai. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so I've been, like, binge-watching me some Cobra Kai while I've been here. And last night, I'm, like, laying in bed and watching Cobra Kai, and I, I hit the wrong button on the remote, and so it went to the news, like, TV, cable, which I don't have cable. I have no interest in mainstream media. And, you know, I'm kind of sitting there trying to scramble, in the first channel, it's, you know, Russia, war, Putin, you know, death, right? And I'm like, oh, God, like, that's awful. So I, I hit the button. And then the next news channel, it's like, you know, millions of Americans are under threat of severe winter weather and everybody's going to starve and freeze to death. And I'm like, oh, God. So then the next channel was like, oh, and children being, you know, kidnapped and molested. And, and I'm just like, ha. You know, I literally am accidentally clicking through to get to my Cobra Kai and I'm just seeing like just the the fear and, you know, let alone like what's been going on the past two years with COVID and the politicalization of that and the propaganda. But, you know, this is where you and I are truth seekers. And I think a lot of people, you know, should be truth seekers. And I think there are a lot of truth seekers out there. And, you know, this is where I look at science as the objective pursuit of truth and spirituality as the subjective pursuit of truth. And I think on a quantum, biological, epigenetic level, the human meat suit and soul and psyche, it knows truth and what's right and, and what's wrong. You know, I do believe there is that contrast in frequency. And this is where whether it's, you know, you're pursuing science to lead you to the truth or, or some sort of spiritual practice, or this is why 
Uh, I'm a big advocate and fan and, and, you know, I do a lot of research around psychedelics because of the way that they dismantle the human ego. But I think what's kind of going on at a mass level is the human ego has really kind of gotten its grip on the wheel and the higher self is, you know, locked up in a closet somewhere. And it's like the ego is always supposed to be a servant of the higher self. And I was just describing this yesterday where I believe what's going on on kind of a psychological level. I think the human ego, my opinion of what it is, I think it's an innate mechanism of self-interest to encourage an organism's uh, continuity, right? So like if an organism didn't have some sort of mechanism, some sort of hardwired self-interested mechanism, you know, the organism isn't going to survive through Darwinistic evolutionary you know, programming and contributing its gene pool. So there has to be some sort of like me first, I'm going to hoard the resources, I'm going to fight to save my life and survive. But in this modern world where we're not really constantly struggling for survival the way that we used to, where we were, you know, every previous generation of human that's ever existed had a much harder life. You know, it, everything's so convenient now. So we're just losing ourselves within ourselves. And the ego has been really corrupted and is kind of, you know, high and drunk and out of control. It's so true. I do think you've touched on a few points. Uh, one is that it's really good. And we talked about this before. And I know I we talked about this on your podcast when I was on there is getting good at doing hard things and learning to suffer well, which you mentioned in the beginning are... I think critical for for the kind of healthy dopamine hits we need, you know, striving for excellence, doing things that are challenging, uh, succeeding, overcoming, and that the the level of pride and the neurochemical reaction that occurs from that is so stellar. And I think we've got a lot of humans right now who have no purpose in the world. They haven't found their purpose. I'm not saying they don't have purpose, but they haven't found their purpose. They're not striving for their purpose. They're fairly miserable in their existences anyway. And then COVID gave them like a purpose. It gave them something to do. I know in Oregon for sure, and I've seen this in a lot of friends and colleagues, is like the mask and the, well, particularly in Portland, the mask and the vaccines, it all became a very much a social justice cause. And, you know, if you don't do it, then you're a racist white supremacist. And it's as simple as that in many people's minds up here, which is so weird to me, but that's pretty much where we're at here. But it gave a lot of people purpose. I saw a lot of people who had not been successful in their careers. They hadn't been successful in love. They hadn't been successful in their lives. And suddenly here comes COVID and they were like, I'm part of something. I'm part of something important and I'm going to do something important. And if you're not part of this, then you're against us. And it all got very weird, very, very fast. Um, and the second thing that you touched on there was just, like I said, you know, learning to suffer well, that comes through challenging yourself in ways that you like strength training, things that are, you know, that take a level of discipline that we put into our day to create opportunities to challenge ourselves purposely, cold plunges, sauna, anything that phys physically challenges you to step up and step into your A game, I think is a really wonderful benefit to being a human being. I love that shit. Like, I love it. <laughs> I love when I'm training. I love the grind moves. I love, I love it. I love it. I love it when I am, something is going on, like, and my workout gets too metabolic. And there's a moment there where I'm like, I don't know if I can get through this. You know, my nervous system starts to freak out. And I love calming my nervous system down and making myself get through that. 
not to the point of invoking pain or injury, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I know you do regularly. Like you deadlift heavy, you put on the metal and you go for it. How, how are those activities beneficial to all the things we're talking about psychologically? Yeah. Well, you kind of look at, I always think of, um, it's input signals in order to kind of induce like a neurochemical or biochemical reaction within the body, right? Where, you know, everybody, they're looking externally for some sort of thing or substance to give them that neurochemical high in sensation when it's like, we can give ourselves that sensation by doing the behaviors that get that right. So you think about um, how dopamine is associated with instant gratification, whereas serotonin is associated with delayed gratification. And it's like, what's delayed gratification? Like you actually have the discipline to put in the work and wait for that payoff. You don't get it right away. Like nothing good in life comes easy, right? Most fulfilling thing. So I think people aren't challenging themselves or holding themselves to a high enough standard. And whether it's, you know, exercise or sunlight or time in nature or time with loved ones or laughter or playing with your dog. Like, why are we looking for that neurochemical sensation in a pill or a drug or, you know, social media when it's like, well, why don't you actually give your body the stimuli it needs to feel that way all the time? Right. So it with the like kind of neurochemical benefits of exercise, like, why do we have geriatric patients with progressive neurodegeneration do physical therapy and puzzles, right? They need that stimuli to delay the neurodegeneration and promote neuroplasticity and neuroregeneration. So, but then people don't think of that in the context of like, well, I'm really anxious and really depressed and I feel like I have no purpose and right. And, and this is where that hedonic versus eudaimonic, you know, we should be pursuing, pursuing, eudaimonic self-actualization, that pursuit of the higher self and your highest path of, you know, how do you want to express yourself, express your soul, express your authentic truth with the gift of life that you have right now? And people are just kind of losing themselves in that. And so I think there's so many things working against the collective, right? Whether it's the processed food or the sedentary lifestyle or never stepping outside, being socially isolated. So it does really set everybody up for a neurochemical profile that makes them feel anxious and depressed and miserable. Um, but they can break out of that if they made different choices. You you bring this back kind of full circle to what I was going to ask you about next, which is, well, for one, you mentioned the news, right? And you mentioned, I mean, that all three of those headlines you mentioned were just terrifying and yeah, scary. I think in off camera, we talked about this even amongst and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus here, but even in my own community, especially on social media, not so much on my podcast and my email list, but the people on my Instagram, there are a lot of people who still seek sensationalism, whether they're on our team or they're not, (laughs) right? They are seeking this sort of sensationalist hit. It's their dopamine hit. It's, It's that neuro, you know, neurochemical firestorm that they need. And I think that humans. And and the reason I say this is because I watched my daughter's generation be completely emotionally deprogrammed. Uh, And I, what I mean by this is I remember walking in on her and a group of her friends when she was a teenager, a young teenager, and there was some nature show on and it was showing like really tremendously disturbing images of glaciers melting and the earth pretty much, I mean, it was kind of a shit show (laughs) looking at it. 
And I walked in and my eyes instantly welled up because I was like, oh God, this is intense, you know? And they just were completely blank faced. And they could watch horror movies and be completely emotionless. And it tripped me out and deeply concerned me because I was like, what is happening to our young people that they're so deprogrammed to just like not have, or they're so programmed, I should say, or they just, they're emotionless. It's weird. And so I think a lot of humans are that way, especially through this pandemic. And so the fear hits have got to be heavier and harder and bigger to even get a response out of people to get them to watch. So we've got that problem, but that trails us right into this concept of neuroinflammation and brains on fire, which I really want to talk about because I know you know a lot about this. Um, how do those two, for the audience, describe how those two things fit together and what neuroinflammation is? What do we mean when we say brains on fire? Yeah, for sure. What you were just saying with the the kind of desensitization, right, where, you know, makes me think of like the people, you know, addicted to porn, but then they can't have healthy sexual function or the girl from North Korea that was on Joe Rogan's podcast and describing the horrors that, you know, she saw, but, you know, she felt nothing because that, that was just her reality, right? And the morbid, you know, fear-mongering media and the movies these days, like what is now rated PG or PG-13 would be like rated R when, when I was a kid, right? So it's just, I really don't think there's anything good about that. And how this kind of ties back to neuroinflammation where, you know, my, you know, area of research and focus and kind of clinical expertise, all, all these things, it all centers around neuroinflammation and, and neuroplasticity. And why I'm so passionate about it is whether we're looking at like, well, what is, you know, the root cause or the main driving force behind the mental health crisis and neurodegenerative crisis? Well, it's, yeah, it's heightened inflammation of, of the brain, right? And it's weird how nobody argues with the idea of like chronic inflammation drives chronic disease. But as soon as you say like chronic neuroinflammation drives mental illness and neurodegeneration, no, it doesn't like, you know, and, and cancel culture, right? Like they, they love to kind of freak out about it. But the thing is like, you know, people don't have to believe me. Big pharma already knows this and they're already working on fancy new drugs to monetize this. So I say this on like every podcast because I just think it's so profound where, you know, the the classic approach to psychiatry and, and mental health in conventional healthcare has for many years been based on, you know, the monoamine theory of mental illness, all about neurotransmitters, right? So we use the SSRIs and the SNRIs and the benzos to just modulate the activity of the neurotransmitters to change brain chemical activity. And, you know, that works to some degree, but as we all know, the efficacy is really pretty low, especially long-term, a lot of undesirable side effects. And so the more up-to-date theories, and that's all that we ever have with science is theories that we can validate to some degree with the body of evidence. But now it's all about the neurotrophic and neuroinflammatory theories of mental illness. And so neuroinflammation uh, being, you know, brain on fire, you think of a forest that's on fire and it's burning down. That's, that's neuroinflammation versus neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. That's the forest growing and thriving with all the way its roots are getting tangled together. And these are inherently antagonistic mechanisms, right? Like the, the forest isn't really going to be like growing and thriving and on fire at the same time. And so big pharma right now, there's a drug called Circumob that's in phase two clinical trials. 
it's a monoclonal antibody. So designer antibody and its mechanism of action is to block interleukin-6, which as you know, and probably a lot of your audience knows, that's the most well-studied pro-inflammatory cytokine known to man. You know, we know that obesity and body fat drives IL-6. We know sedentary lifestyle. We know fatty liver. We know hyperglycemia and diabetes. We know all of these chronic inflammatory factors drive IL-6 and drives this inflammation. So they're intending on using this drug as a, you know, second line treatment for treatment resistant depression. And so what's the problem with an anti-inflammatory drug or a monoclonal antibody that blocks pro-inflammatory cytokine? It reduces immunity. It lowers immune function, right? What's the risk of any of those TNF alpha blockers or interleukin blockers? It increases your risk of infection. So it's like, wait, how are we going to combat a mental health crisis with an immunosuppressive drug during an infectious disease crisis? But that's literally what's going on. And so what people need to wake up to is going, well, but why is my inflammation elevated? And it's like, well, let's talk about standard American diet and lifestyle and all the things, right? So it's pretty mind-blowing. And I think a lot of people, you know, they are struggling with neuroinflammation at a more meta chronic level and they have no idea. And so they're not looking at what can I do to reduce my neuroinflammatory load. It's they're just projecting this as the anxiety and depression and the cancel culture and all these kind of, you know, crazy behaviors. Nailed it. <laughs> that's, that's it. I have to stop myself and realize when people come at me, um, they're, I mean, often I can just tell by reading their words, even the way they type, I'm like, oh, their brains are on fire. I know because my brain was on fire. I'm not judging. I've been there. I was that girl. And I think that something that people don't also understand, and you can go into this in more detail too, but just the quick and dirty, the way I explain it to people is in our body, we have a checks and balances in our inflammatory and immune system, right? And it's a teeter-totter, hopefully. And often it gets out of balance, but at least there's a checks and balances in the brain. Once those microglial cells turn on, there's no checks and balances. When they're on, they're on. They are primed to go once they've been activated. They're very difficult to tone down, but they stay primed. So they're more easy, readily easy to set off in the future moving forward. Uh, common things that we take on the regular, like birth control pills, NSAIDs, all of those things can contribute to this cycle. And then this is also the reason for the listeners who like, this is how I put it in perspective for my patients. I would have patients come in and you've probably had clients like this who had been maybe when they were 17, they'd been in some kind of horrific like rollover car accident and they walked away unscathed and it was no big deal. And then flash forward several years later, and maybe they uh, just had a baby, or maybe something was going on hormonally, you know, they were starting to get a little out of whack. And then maybe they just got rear ended at like 35 miles per hour, nothing at barely a bump. And boom, they go into this chronic pain syndrome. So that's what I treated clinically my for, in my world often was this centrally sensitized pain syndrome, right their their immune or I'm sorry, their nervous system was lit up like a Christmas tree that is the neuroinflammatory effect. And so it take you know, that first accident primed their microglial cells, then maybe they had some traumatic insults, caught a few viruses in there, had some birth control pill, or maybe a pregnancy. And when I say that, it's because the surge in estrogen and the imbalance in estrogen to progesterone, and then boom, something what that would be seemingly mild happens, and it destroys them. And now they're in chronic pain or they're in chronic depression or both. And it's a real slippery slope because if you look at soft tissue um, 
healing protocols, they'll tell you, oh, you know, soft tissue should heal in this many weeks, and the insurance companies will stop paying because they're like, oh, you should be healed in four to six weeks. And so therefore, there can't be anything wrong with you. And I'm like, dude, their brain's on fire. This is going to be a whole unwinding, which is going to take months to years to get them back to a place. I had a, a patient once who um, had been through sex trafficking, and then she was in a terrible car accident. And I couldn't do anything with her. Like I could barely touch her. She was so, everything would send her into a chronic spiral of pain and tears. And I mean, it was very, very difficult. She understood. I, you know, I actually, how I pulled her out of it was sauna. I got, I had her insurance company pay for a pop-up sauna, one of the, you know, thousand dollar ones. And she just saunted herself back into some level of calm (laughs) where we could actually do something with the tissues. But I share that because it helps tie together all the things that you and I always talk about independently on our own accounts. It's like the sauna, the sun, the walking, the strength training, the diet, or I shouldn't say diet, but just eating nutritiously dense foods, um, getting a good macronutrient blends, like all of those things, it's all one, right? And ultimately in my head, and the reason I love your work so much is because it all comes down to neuroinflammation. Because without that being under control, everything else sort of falls apart, right? Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm I'm so obsessed with it. And, you know, I created the coined the phrase microglial activation syndrome to kind of describe this whole phenomena. Because as you mapped out so perfectly there, this is why and I do and I, you know, I, I used the word crazy earlier, which you know, it's not that I mean that in a derogatory way, but I have a lot of empathy and and compassion for it because it's like, yeah, like your microglial cells are are working against you here and they probably got skewed towards their pro-inflammatory phenotype at birth because it's like you start kind of tracing it back where you know, okay, maybe the kid was born, you know, via C-section. So their microbiome's compromised and they got put on all these antibiotics or, you know, tons of doses of vaccines right away. And we actually, like, we know that, you know, the microbiome matures and trains the immune system, but that includes those microglial cells in the brain. I mean, we could talk about the gut brain axis all day. And that's what my subject for that better biome thing was. But so a lot of people like literally out of the womb, their microglial cells are already kind of predisposed. So microglial cells, they have their two main morphologies or phenotypes, either their M1 pro-inflammatory neurodestructive cytotoxic, you know, neurodegenerative phenotype, or their M2 phenotype, which is neuroprotective, neuroregenerative. And so the activity of the microglial cells ultimately dictates like, is your brain growing and regenerating or is it inflamed and degenerating? So a lot of people like from birth and there's big microbiome component there, but then like you said, the early early life stress or adverse childhood events or, you know, trauma we see through literature that that skews those microglial cells more in that M1 pro-inflammatory or then the hyperglycemia, the fatty liver, the vitamin D deficiency, lack of exercise. So this is why, you know, or hypoxia, which, you know, COVID hypoxia, right? So literally every single aspect of the standard American lifestyle and environment and sociological, psychological behavior with the cortisol that primes the microglial cells, the the punchline really becomes our microglial cells are being just flooded with all these pro-inflammatory 
inflammatory input signals. And so a lot of people really are kind of perpetually locked into this neuroinflammatory profile. And that's why I created a test to actually measure this. And then I can show people with really sensitive data points of like, hey, it's not just all in your head. Like there's nothing you know wrong with you. You're not horribly damaged or whatever, but you do have this psychoneuroendocrine immunological dysfunction. You know, these cells are dysfunctional. And if we actually change the milieu, we change the input signals that those cells are receiving. And, you know, there's all sorts of pharmacological things, lifestyle things, environmental things that we can do to shift those microglial cells back to their neuroprotective and neuroregenerative. And that's where a lot of that healing occurs. So, you know, it's not that I think that everybody needs to know the technical, but I think just having like a basic understanding, it helps people understand like what's going on here at a you know cellular level. So then it's empowering of like, oh, so, you know, that's why I should go get my sunlight. That's why I should go exercise. That's why I should make sure I'm taking my supplements and eating my nutrient dense food, right? Because just everything about what most people are doing and how they're living. Yeah. Brain on fire perpetually. It's hard to make good decisions or be very rational, you know, when, when your brain is cooking and that's why, you know, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in America. Uh, the second leading cause for ages 10 to 34. And then Alzheimer's is number six, right? Like there's a huge correlation with the comorbidity of mental health, neuroinflammation, and all these chronic inflammatory diseases. Well, and most of those people either do or will have some type of chronic pain. And that, and you know, anyone who's depressed, the chances of them having anyone with lingering depression, we know from the studies has chronic pain or will, and people with chronic pain have depression. And it's not just because they're in pain. It's this. It's what we're talking about right here. This is what's driving it all at the root core. Um, the things that we use to get out of pain, like ibuprofen, guess what that does? It drives it towards the M1. Ibuprofen directly impacts your microglial cells in that direction. Um, so, you know, alcohol, people drown themselves in alcohol. I've done it when they hurt. It's like, well, I'll just drink more and that'll numb me out so I can go to bed. And then your sleep gets disrupted and, and you perpetuate through the supposed remedies that allopathic and modern life has and medicine has given us, um, we're driving it, right? Opioids drive it. Opioids actually prime microglial cells to drive them harder in the wrong direction. Vitamin D deficiency. You know, these are all, this, this to me is like the top down answer to everything. And this also leads us into furthering the insulin resistance picture and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis because of there gets cortisol resistance up in there, you know, for especially for little kids. Like I had a pretty tumultuous childhood. I'm addicted to cortisol. I feel like I remember the day the pandemic got called, my cortisol shot through the roof. And for about 36 hours, I felt amazing. <laughs> I just, I felt so good because I was like, Ooh, I got the hit, you know, and I've had to up until that point, I, I when I met you, I joked because I was in like cortisol anonymous, I was training myself out of chasing that chronic cortisol hit. But I think that that's part of what I was saying with the news, right? We've got to get that cortisol hit, we've got to get that adrenaline hit, we've got to get that dopamine hit. And so the sensationalism that people are seeking, whether it's coming from my side of things. And this is a big reason why, well, let's just put it this way. I'm not playing pandemic anymore. And I've said it to my audience and they don't like it, some of them, and they leave and it's fine because they want that hit out of me. They want to show up to my Instagram or open my email and be like, yeah. And I just, 
I want to be grooving in Sedona. Like, <laughs> I need that vibe to continue because that was the calmest my brain has ever felt. It was great, you know, and I think that people get in this cycle without having any clue. And I say this with love because these people have no idea everything we just listed that they think they're taking to help themselves is potentially making things worse. Yeah, unfortunately so. And the you said that perfectly with the the chronic fatigue, the chronic pain, and the depression, right? Like it's those three every time. And you know, we're seeing through the literature with the neuro like neuroinflammation in the hypothalamus in particular, they really think that's what drives the nociception and just higher, higher pain throughout the body and the fatigue. And you know, we know that the neuroinflammation and the microglia activation is really Really what drives the neurotransmitter imbalances. There's two key enzymes that are both really cool that as soon as, you know, the adaptive immune system kicks on and inflammation stirs up. So, you know, I feel, I do, I feel bad. And I mean, this is why I'm so passionate about my work is, you know, I think of kind of like the neurochemical profile of like your average American where, you know, we need plenty of serotonin, dopamine and GABA and acetylcholine and oxytocin just to be feeling good and functional and clear and happy and fulfilled and all the things. And so many people are so low and a lot of those feel good. Whereas like the glutamate, the histamine, the norepinephrine, the cortisol, you know, that's what most people have uh, as far as their neurochemical profiles. So they do, they seek out whatever the thing is that's going to give them that temporary relief. But like you said, there's just so many things that, that can be done to give them more lasting, you know, the, the vitamin D, the zinc, you know, there's, there's a whole list of, of things going on. So it's sad, but, but I do, I think if we can kind of educate these people and get them out of that, you know, toxic neurotransmitter profile and, and kind of open up their mind, then, then we can apply the right interventions, whether it's environmental lifestyle, psychological, supplemental, or pharmaceutical or all the above. You know, I do want to touch on, cause I know you know about this and I don't want to keep you too long, but we could do a whole podcast on this and we should, but, um, the studies, the research I've been doing on psilocybin on healing this has been just phenomenal. And I have to say from even personal experience, microdosing here and there has, it, it, it literally heals the immune or the, the nervous system. I mean, it literally heals the nervous system. It heals it centrally. It heals it peripherally. Going back to your neuroinflammation, um, the thing that people don't understand is your brain's on fire, but what's happening distally in the nerves is your nociceptors, which are your pain receptors, get switched in your cord with your mechanoreceptors. So suddenly a hug hurts and th pressure hurts. Things that shouldn't be registering as pain register as pain. And so these people truly like they did studies up at Oregon Health Sciences University when they discovered this back in the 90s where they would if you pinch an area on your skin, it'll feel like a pinch. But over time, if you become centrally sensitized, even brushing it with a feather will create the same sensation of pain. And so that's what people really need to understand. And then I, I have been looking for decades to find something that literally heals the nervous system. I found some relief with HCG. HCG actually has been shown in rats to regrow their spinal cords, which is phenomenal. Um, SSRIs actually, flu uh, fluvoxamine actually creates neurogenesis, which is amazing. It's very helpful after stroke. Um, so there is some efficacy to SSRIs in healing the nervous system. And it, 
I remember being back in school in like 2007, 2008, reading a paper about how um, Prozac might actually be working by being an anti-inflammatory in the brain more than it is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you know? And so psilocybin has been the one thing that I have really been digging and digging into, realizing that especially when you combine it with, I've been playing with um, lion's mane <laughs> and reishi and cordyceps and just different uh, mushrooms in general, because I think that everything works better synergistically. Cacao, raw cacao. I think all of these things are helpful, but I think the psilocybin with the nervous system thing is like, that might save the world. What do you, what do you think of my rant here? No, you're, you're spot on. I, I think long-term, I, I aspire to go more in the direction of psychedelic research. Um, long-term, that's where I want to go with all of it. Because, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, like, uh, obviously, we have to make sure the audience knows, like, you, you can't medicate or supplement your way out of a toxic environment or, you know, unhealthy lifestyle. But assuming that, you know, you are doing the environmental work and putting yourself in healthy environments and you are putting in the lifestyle work with your nutrition and your exercise and your sleep hygiene and stress management, you know, but this is where I think so many people, they are struggling so hard and it's really hard to adopt new belief systems and create new behavioral patterns when your neuroplasticity is compromised because neuroinflammation is high. So they, it, it makes it all the harder, which is why I am really passionate about a well-designed supplement protocol or even you know, using different pharmaceuticals, you know, appropriately. So things like low dose naltrexone or, you know, minocycline is one of the really interesting compounds that is a known microglial inhibitor yeah. to make them quiescent. So they're looking at using minocycline for PTSD, right? Um, because I've, of I've used it for it pain. Works. I've used yeah. it for chronic pain. Yeah. I mean, it, it works pretty well, but this is why I'm so passionate about the psychedelic compounds is like, if you take away the stigma and the taboo and, you know, Oh, it's a drug and you know, take away all the, the archaic taboo and just look at it from like a research clinical efficacy perspective, the psychedelic compounds like LSD and psilocybin and ayahuasca and DMT, you know, their main mechanism of action really seems to be working upon the serotonergic system, which drives neuroplasticity and decreases neuroinflammation. And, you know, we just see more and more research coming out about it, but you mentioned the reishi and the lion's mane, like lion's mane is one of my favorite, you know, non-psychedelic supplements just to boost or even curcumin, quercetin, luteolin, whatever. But yeah, I think psilocybin, it's it, like, it's already here. It's just some people are still resistant to it, but I would say psilocybin is like at the top of the list as far as kind of the decreasing the neuroinflammation, helping the nervous system heal, you know, whether it's a microdose or more of a, you know, macrodose, whatever, it's still one of the most efficacious compounds known to man. But uh, I'm glad you mentioned the SSRIs though, because yeah, even the SSRIs, like by promoting serotonin that activates the pathway to produce BDNF and encourage more neuroplasticity. So even some of the SSRIs, SRIs have an anti-neuroinflammatory effect, which is part of why they are kind of antidepressants. So again, it just really validates the whole concept of neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity, and, and how we can modulate this using all sorts of tools. 
And this is, we say this for the listeners, because I can't tell you how many people have come into my office or reached out to me online and said, you know, I went to my doctor for pain and or whatever, and they offered me an antidepressant and they just didn't listen to me. And I'm like, no, there's actually good research on that. Like I would take the Prozac. (laughs) I would try it because I think that, and I say this because I got really good clinically at basically microdosing Prozac. I was, I was lucky enough to be around, um, a clinician at, in my naturopathic training who was really into microdosing herbs way back when. And I'm talking drop dose. That's That was the term. You drop dose the herbs. You do one drop instead of a dropper full and you get an impact. It's kind of a homeopathic way of thinking, right? And we would get the Prozac on board at a very, very low dose. I'm talking five milligrams, two and a half milligrams, maybe every other day. And the results were fantastic. So not enough, you know, the the typical dose of Prozac is going to be anywhere between 10 and 40 milligrams. And that can cause a lot of side effects. And you, you know, the, 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 the magic is in the dose, right? And so keeping things really low, kind of almost like a hormetic effect, but such a profound impact, at least early on, on the hypothalamic pituitary axis, like I have yet to find something that boosts that access so beautifully, so quickly for people. And so when people go on Prozac and they say, you know, I was told it wasn't supposed to work for two weeks, but I felt better immediately. Like it saved my life. I can attest to personally having experienced that as well and seeing it in many patients or seeing their pain. For me, the pain was the, that is how I knew that neuroinflammation was improving was their pain was resolving um, or it was going down to something that was manageable that they could actually think about it. Like you said, like once you get the neuroinflammation tuned down, people can go, oh, now I can make better decisions about the rest of my life (laughs) and actually implement, right? So there's a lot of ways to get there. Uh, There's a lot of ways to skin the cat. I think a lot of them, a lot of these things work synergistically. I would add to this. I don't know if you know who Dr. Scott Shear is, but you should meet him. He was on my podcast and he uh, is, he specializes in hyperbaric oxygen and also methylene blue. So we had a really nice conversation about that. So those those are also impactful ways to get there. But bottom line is, is what we're talking about here and kind of what we were hitting on through the whole beginning of this conversation is really this neuroinflammatory piece. And I was taught by Dr. Paul Anderson that if you assume someone has neuroinflammation, they probably do. And so for the audience listening, if you're concerned you have it, you probably do, especially if you're eating a standard American diet, drinking soda, not exercising or over-exercising, live in a stressful environment, grew up in an abusive house, still living in an, anyone living in an abusive situation is, I, I believe, is dealing with some level of it. Oh, absolutely. I, I always Masking like to, all day, right? Well, for sure. And, you know, I think people, it's kind of this all or nothing binary outlook of either you do or don't have it. It's like, no, no, no. It's like everything's a spectrum and neuroinflammation is a spectrum. So I'm always thinking in terms of the neuroinflammatory load. And, you know, this is why I'm, I'm really big on having strong, sensitive, objective data so we can actually see, like, regardless of what intervention strategy resonates with you, whether it's like, you know, vagal toning or psychedelics or SSRIs or just exercise or tanning in a tanning bed to get UV and get some, whatever the hell you want to do. 
is it moving the needle, right? Because when you are kind of suffering from the cytokine storm in your brain and all this neuroinflammation, yeah, you're not rational. You're not thinking straight. You're working against your physiology. Um, But it's helpful to really be able to see like what's actually moving the needle or the biomarkers moving in the right direction. It brings objectivity to it and also kind of brings some validation. So that way they don't think it's just them and it's a them problem, right? Because that's having been diagnosed with ADHD and, and major depressive disorder when I was 21 and going through the conventional psychiatric model, like that's the worst part of it is you just feel like you're this broken thing and something's wrong with you and there's no hope for you just have to talk to a therapist forever and take the drugs forever even if they have undesirable side effects right so i think you know this is just such an empowering and educational conversation that people can resonate with of like yeah i, I, I brain on fire that's exactly how i feel you know <laughs> it's true and when you get away from it and it happens again like mine will slip back every once in a while depending on life and what I'm eating and whatever. Um, And that was a big reason why I decided to quit drinking was because it was just, I I was like, what am I doing? I work so hard and I take such an expensive array of supplements (laughs) to keep this at bay. And then I'm adding, it's like pouring lighter fluid on the fire. It's crazy. So um, I think that people don't always realize how good it feels to feel good until you finally get there. And then when you slip back a little, you're like, oh shit, this is terrible. And I have to remind myself that a lot of my pain is being driven by that, right? So I'm like, did I hurt my back? Should I focus? I mean, this is also why we don't focus on the back when the back hurts always, right? We focus on the person. Like that's, you think very much like a naturopathic doctor in that way. It's like when someone says my back hurts, my first, of course, I palpate the back and I assess the back and I do an exam on the back, but I'm also interested in like what's driving that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's weird how conventional kind of always compartmentalizes everything. Whereas now it's like, you know, the liver brain axis, the gut brain axis, the HPA brain axis. I mean, you know, I I don't know why we don't think of it as one working unit that way and how all these factors are influencing what's going on neurologically. For sure. And so exercise is a huge, this is why people, you, myself, Nicole Birkin was taught, we were talking with her about this exercise is the most underutilized potent antidepressant and just all around fixer upper, <laughs> if you will. Can you briefly speak on that? Cause I don't want to keep you all day, but I, I know that you're the expert in this. So what, why, why am I such a, a meathead? Why do I want to everyone to lift the weights? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to get that one. Cause the, not that, you know, I don't, want to subscribe to any one thing of like, this is the end all be all. But like, if I had to pick one thing that I think is the most powerful form of medicine for healing the body, it's movement, it's exercise without a doubt, you know, sunshine, absolutely good food. Absolutely. But exercise is it, it's just different. You know, it creates a, an amazingly profound effect on the tissues, whether it's improving mitochondrial density and our ability to store energy and nutrients, making us more resilient, but especially like with the mental health. So this is a really cool clinical pearl where, you know, brain drive neurotrophic factor, which is the protein that really regulates neuroplasticity, neurogenesis and neural repair in the brain. And that's the main mechanism of action of psilocybin and the psychedelics is it just blasts up BDNF and neuroplasticity. 
But they've actually found that BDNF isn't just made in the brain. It's also made in the periphery. It's made by your muscles and it has a secondary name, which is metabokine. And so this BDNF, like they're looking at using exogenously administered BDNF as a treatment for type 1 diabetes because it's been shown to help regenerate the beta cells of the pancreas. It decreases liver hepatic gluconeogenesis and glucose excursions. So, you know, we know that working out and using your skeletal muscle, it creates a big surge in all sorts of different myokines, including metabokine, aka BDNF, that can, you know, modulate your blood sugar levels, let alone the insulin sensitivity effect. But also we're shooting all this BDNF up into the brain to, to drive more, um, you know, neuromuscular connectivity and neurogenesis. So that that's kind of the mechanism that explains why, you know, geriatric patients with Alzheimer's do so much better with physical therapy. And you mentioned Paul Anderson. I, I did a little talk at his um, conference a few years ago and I, I got to meet him. I got to shake the guy's hand, mad respect. And that whole conference was oncology themed. And, you know, I, I got to sit in on some of the lectures and he talked about, you know, muscle and lean mass. And he, he said it just so candidly to the audience. And I loved it. He's like patients, you know, cancer patients with more lean mass had better outcomes, period. period. So make, make sure they're extras. That was it. That was it. And I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> I love him. I was on a panel with him at an event and I was kind of like the new kid and he I'm up there with some like naturopathic giants including Paul Anderson and there we're going around passing the mic on the panel and I just kept doubling down on strength training and the mic goes back to Paul and they were like what do you think Paul and Paul goes Tina's right about everything. <laughs> that was a shining moment. He's like she's right. It's not I mean, he's talking about it right now as we speak on Instagram. He's, you know, he's talking about how he got over COVID and muscle is medicine, which you and I talk about a lot. So, I mean, this is not, we're not the only ones saying this, right? Like this is a known thing. If you have anything wrong with you, exercise makes it better. Your chances of recovering from any kind of chronic or acute illness are significantly higher if you have good lean muscle mass on you. Your chances of getting anything bad are significantly lower if you have good lean muscle mass on you. So in my opinion, it's a non-negotiable insurance policy. Like if you, especially as we age, it's no fucking joke. I'm, I'm like turning the corner on 50 here, which I never thought I would, which is super weird. But like, I see people my age and I am shocked, frankly. It was disturbing in my early 40s to see people my age and be so out of shape. But to see people as we're approaching 50, I mean, this is really the dividing line. If you're not, not to say that you can't get into good shape later, but it's harder. And so it's it, the best time to start is always now. <laughs> Two years ago is probably better, but hey, we got we do what we can do. So even if you're in your 70s or 80s, you can benefit. It doesn't mean you're going to make everything remarkably go away that's bothering you. But for the young folks out there, I know there's young listeners on, on this show. And if you're in your 20s, I just want to say that the number one thing I wish I had discovered when I was young was strength training. I It would have remarkably changed my life, I think, for the better because of this neuroinflammation component. Like that's the one modulator I use that I can count on. I won't make any major decisions until I exercise. I won't um, engage in any difficult conversations until I exercise. If I have a difficult conversation or event coming up, I make sure to exercise before I, I exercise before I go to family gatherings. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so it keeps the batshit crazies away. <laughs> yeah. I, 
it's crazy because like you know i i gravitated as we talked about at dinner the other night when we were talking about martial arts and stuff like i grew up doing karate and that was that was my first love my first passion and i just i just always felt better because yes i you know i've been diagnosed with two mental health disorders and i definitely have more predisposition to depressive behaviors and phenotypes i'm just more susceptible that's the way the genetics run for me and it was funny like well, not funny, but the amount of kind of like shaming that I got growing up of like, oh, Brendan, like he has to go get his workout and he's so high maintenance with his food and, and all of that. And it's like, you know, as a kid and trying to go against the grain and all of that, if I just, I, I gravitated towards it because it made me feel better on every possible level. And it's funny because like I left the personal training world because I was kind of tired of like, so you're just going to take people through workouts, drink protein shakes and eat chicken and broccoli out of microwaved plastic. But then all their adrenals were tanked and their gut health was shit. Right. But then as I've gotten into the functional medicine space and it's like most of the people in our industry are not super fit. Right. And I'm like, Ooh, uh, I think, think we're missing something here, ladies and gentlemen, but you know, it's, it's resilience building. Uh, and you know, we know that fat, fat tissue, adipocytes and muscle tissue, myocytes, they're endocrine glands. And one is very health promoting and the other is pretty mm, pro-inflammatory and, and degenerating. So. Yep. Yep. Wearing, uh, wearing an adipose suit around is like wearing an inflammatory blanket. It's like basically cooking yourself in a pro-inflammatory blanket that's infiltrated your muscle tissue and your bones. It gets everywhere. It gets in your liver. It gets everywhere. And it's very pro-inflammatory. And this is why I double down on this. And I will hold the line on that no matter how many names I get called, no matter how much fat shaming I get accused of being. I understand what adipokines do. And until people do understand very well what adipokines do, I don't even think they get to argue with me. <laughs> Because I'm just not like we have gone so far astray as a society. And we are walking a very slippery slope right now. And it's going to become very apparent, I think, in the coming years, how this is all going to shake out. And I, I feel so sad for the young folks, because not only are kids dealing with a lot more obesity and a lot more diabetes than type two lifestyle induced than they had prior to the pandemic, but a lot of them have amassed up. And that low grade hypoxia is so inflammatory to the brain. You're such a smart, smart guy. And it's always so fun to talk to you. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. I keep mentioning this, because um, your time is precious. And I know you're on vacation, I want you to go back on the sun. So <laughs> um, tell everybody where they can find you. What are you focusing on right now? Where do you want people to go? And, and uh, what's your main prerogative over the 2022? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love the shit out of you, Tina. Like you're you're the best. I I really uh it's been a very precious friendship because as we are kind of talking about, I you know, they say never meet your idols. And I I would say like 80% of the people that I idolized, not so great in real life, unfortunately. So thank you for being one of the good ones. Aww. You and Carrie, uh Karan, you know. But um as far thank as you. finding me on Instagram, the holistic savage, that's my main platform. That's where I pump everything out. Um, but my main thing these days is just like, I'm going to, I'm going to ride this neuroinflammation thing out and probably until I die. Cause I, I think it's really necessary. I, I think the work and research I'm doing around the microglial activation 
I, I just think it's so crucial. Um, and I think this is really just the beginning. So at this point, I've almost like painted myself in a corner of like, well, hopefully I didn't have any other career aspirations because I, I got to do this. So that's really what I'm focusing on these days. Well, you've got some, are you, is it okay to mention your lab testing? Absolutely. Yeah. What's going yeah. on with that? So the mental map. <laughs> so map stands for microglial activation profile, which I, I think is really sexy, but the mental map is probably a little bit more marketable. Um, but that was the proprietary lab panel that I created to actually objectively assess the likelihood of microglial uh, activation and, and neuroinflammation. So I'm really proud of it. You know, I'm very astute to all the lab testing on the market and I have an issue with a lot of it. I think it's kind of unreliable, not cost effective, not scientifically validated. So I'm really proud of this panel. I think it's, I've seen it change a lot of lives in my personal practice. And now I'm starting to train more providers. We're selling it direct to consumer. We're actually about to release an at-home version because the, the original versions were all venous blood draw, which is the better way to go if that's doable and accessible. But obviously not everybody's capable of pulling 10 to 20 vials of blood. So we're about to release an at-home version that's just urine and a little finger prick. So um, I think it's really good data that empowers people and helps kind of guide their, their healing journeys. So that way they can kind of stay rooted in evidence and see like, are you decreasing that neuroinflammation? And, and feeling better. So I'm super excited to, you know, kind of provide the world with a reliable tool to navigate this stuff. That's really exciting because it's just not an easy thing to assess. Like I mentioned, it's like we've been going off the assumption for years, but it'll be really nice to have some objective data to show people, like you said, because it it's it sure is nice to know that neuroinflammation is a driving force versus being diagnosed with bipolar type two or major depressive syndrome or whatever it is that, you know, we've all had it happen to us as, as young people. I did, I know. And I think that if that is why I'm a naturopathic physician, because I stumbled into Dr. Rick Marinelli's office when I was 24 and he sat me down and he, I had a virus. I had cytomegalovirus, which my audience knows about, like it almost killed me in college and it infects the brain and it causes all of these things. So he was the first person to say, you're not crazy. You just have an infection that's impacting your brain, a viral infection, and we need to treat you for that. And that was like, poof, that was the beginning of my journey. So anywho, Brendan, I love you. I am so glad you came on the show. I hope you'll come back soon. And I will send everybody to your Instagram and your website and wherever else you want me to send them. The links will all be in the show notes for people so they can find you because you're such a valuable resource to the world. Thank you, Tina. That really means the world. I love you and really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.